Well, praise the Lord and welcome back to our teaching from the book of Ephesians. Uh, this uh, session I'm going to be teaching on how to trust God. How to trust God. Now, the reason I'm doing this particular teaching is because when you look at everything under the new covenant, everything that has to do with God, with us, and the kingdom, all the things that God has done and that are available for us can only be received by believing God, by the faith of the Son of God, by trusting God. I mean, everything, everything in the kingdom, from being born again. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall be saved. So everything in the kingdom hinges upon our ability to trust God. And so I want to take this time to teach on how to trust God. Now, I may have to use two sessions to complete this particular thought or concept or message, but I think it'll be worthwhile because we really need to understand it and begin to learn on how to trust God. So let me just go to a scripture, Hebrews 11, in verse 6. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, But without faith, it is impossible to please God. In fact, the easy transition of the Bible says, Without trust, it's impossible to please God. Okay? So Hebrews 11, 6, again, Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, if you are like me, you go to this scripture in Hebrews 11:6, you quote it, you know it, you, re, uh, you, you can recite it, but it's important for me to give you a little insight as to how this scripture was given and what it truly, really means and how it can impact us today. Now, when you look at the book of Hebrews, first of all, by the title, Hebrews, it is obvious that that book was written exclusively at the time to the Hebrews who have made the transition out of the Mosaic law into the New Covenant. So these Hebrews were very familiar with everything under the Old Covenant. And if you know anything about the Old Covenant, it was all physical, tangible, you can see it, you can taste it, you can hear it. I mean, it was all about physical, tangible elements. You had a priesthood who wore a special garment, who burnt incense, who offered animal sacrifices. They saw blood, all, all, uh, blood uh, sp uh, spilled at the altar. Everything there had to do with your physical senses. Now, for these Hebrews, who just came from under the Mosaic law and are now in the New Covenant. They came under the persecution twofold. Number one, from the Roman government. And number two, from fellow Jews who were persecuting them for leaving the Mosaic law and putting pressure on them to return to the Old Covenant. Mind you, mind you, when this book was written, that temple was still standing, 
animal sacrifices was still taking place. All of the physical elements of the old covenant was still intact. We know this because we read this in the book of Acts, how that Peter and John were on their way to the temple, okay, in the hour of prayer, and they saw the lame man at the gate called beautiful, and so forth and so on. So we know that all of this was still in place. Now, why am I telling you all of this? When you read Hebrews chapter 1 through 10, the writer of the Hebrews was making a case and making a contrast and comparison between the old covenant of the law and the new covenant. And he went through great pains, great length to convince these new Hebrew believers that what they have is more superior to what they used to have. And that while what they had under the Mosaic law was all physical and tangible, that under the new covenant, we live by a new, uh, a, a new set of rules, a new set of, uh, uh, of a regiment, a new set of protocol. In the New Testament, it's not physical, it's not tangible, but rather it is by faith. It was time to tell them, listen, don't go back to what Moses did. Don't go back to what you're familiar with. Don't go back to what you can see, feel, taste, or touch. Because now under this new dispensation of the covenant of grace, it is totally, completely by faith. Now, let me go back to Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 37 through 39 to help support and help you understand that. It says to them, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. Look at what it says. It says now, 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 today, now the just shall live by faith. Not by the physical elements you used to see, feel, taste, and touch. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, if you go back to the things you can feel, taste, touch, and smell. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But, thank goodness, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition. We are not going back to the things we can feel, see, touch, taste, and smell, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So now, now, it is as a result of what is told them, as he closed that Hebrews chapter 10, that we now read in Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is. Now, now what? Now what? After what I've said to you, after having given you the comparisons, the contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant, whereas in the old covenant, everything was based on what they can feel, see, taste, touch, and smell. Now, in this new covenant, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not sin. I needed to set the stage for our lesson today in order for us to fully understand the reason why this is so critical. We must be of those who fully trust God. We have to believe him. We have to have faith in him. We have to trust him because, in fact, God is absolutely trustworthy. Now, in Proverbs chapter 3, in verses 5 and 6, the Bible says, Trust in the Lord 
with all thine heart and lean not to thy own understanding. In all thy ways, we are told, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Now, for many of us, when things are going well, we don't acknowledge them because we just, uh, you know, what I call uh, the default for many, of, for many of us. The default for many of us is our sense knowledge, SK, sense knowledge. The things we know, the things we are familiar with, that's our default. But that's not the way God wants us to live. That's not the way he wants us to live. He said, in all thy ways, not some of your ways, in all of them, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Now, in the lesson that we're going to take up next week on walking in your identity, you're going to see how critically important this is. Because many times you and I think, okay, we know the right way. Okay, let me just give an example. This last week I was going to a place in, uh, called Lucas Grove in Georgia. Lucas Grove. Now, I know how to get there. I've been there many times before. But this particular day, I just, you know what? I said, let, let me just put in my GPS. I put in the GPS, and to my biggest surprise, the GPS was taking me in a totally different direction than the place, I, the way I used to know how to get to where I'm going. Now, I'm familiar with the place. I've been there many times before, but I just wanted to see how the GPS would take me. Why? Because I know that there was a lot of traffic at the time I was going. And to my utmost surprise, this GPS took me in a totally opposite direction to the direction I would have chosen to go. Now, Upon getting there, I now realized there was, heavy, there was serious, heavy traffic in the normal way or direction I would have taken. So the, GBP, the GPS came to my rescue by giving me an alternative way of how to get to my destination in a faster period of time. Well, that's exactly what God does for us. And again, I don't, want to give up, I don't want to get into that message from next week now, but I just want you to know, when we acknowledge God in all of our ways, there are certain things that we are engaging in of which we do not know the ultimate consequence. We do not know what's beyond what we can see. But God knows all, sees all, and has all the power. And because he knows all and sees all, Every now and then, it will tell me and you, don't go the way you're choosing to go. Don't take that job. Don't marry that woman or don't marry that man. Blah, 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 blah. Why? Because he knows the end result. Amen? He says, I know the plans that I have for you, plans of peace and not of evil, to bring you to an expected end. But if he's going to bring us to an expected end, we have to allow him to do so. Amen? So we should... Always acknowledge him, even in the simplest of things. Because, like I'm saying to you, God knows the end from the beginning and therefore is able to give us clearer, better direction. First Peter chapter 5, in verses 6 and 7, the Bible says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Amen? One of the reasons for which we don't uh, 
follow God or we, uh, we, we don't trust him is the issue of our own humility. Amen? We feel like we know it. Uh, we feel like we can do it. We feel like we have the resources, so why should I consult God? Amen? But the Bible is now telling me and you, humble yourselves. In other words, acknowledge that you, in and of yourself, can do nothing. That's what Jesus said. John chapter 5, verse 39. In and of, your, of yourself, you can do nothing. Only, only by the grace of God, only through God's loving kindness and tender mercies, can you and I really fully function. Amen? So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care, for he cares for you. Now, Let's get back to this message now. It is easy to put faith and trust in God when things are going easy. But when times get tough, that's when the rubber meets the road and you need to step up and let go so you can let God. Now, it's always better to work on your faith and on your trust daily and not just during the hard times. I cannot say that enough. Amen? It's always better to work on your trust issues or working in faith on a daily basis rather than waiting on hard times. Almost the same way as a vaccination. You take a vaccination against a disease, against a sickness, maybe it's the flu, maybe it's COVID-19. You take the vaccination before you ever contact the disease. Why? Because by taking that vaccination, you've given the vaccination time to work in your body so that when the disease comes upon you or comes in contact with you, the vaccination is already working and is providing for you immunity, faith, and trusting God works similarly. Amen? We need to learn to start trusting God or having faith in the little things so that when we need the biggies, we already have in the bank, in a reservoir, deposits of faith. Now, there are a few things we need to understand when it comes to successfully trusting God completely. So, let me take a moment to address why, why we struggle with trusting God. Why do we struggle with trusting God? Number one, thanks to Adam, we were born in a, with a sin nature. It's just that simple. We were born with a sin nature into a fallen world, and therefore, we inherited from Adam the propensity to be doubters and not believers because we were born with a sin nature. I think that's very self-explanatory. Second reason, and this is very, very important, second reason for which we struggle with trusting God is our family background. Every child that's born into this earth is born into a family, thank God. And our family is the first place where we learn of the love of God and of trusting. Where perhaps, maybe not every family in the love of God, but let, let me rephrase that. Our families are the first places where all children learn about love and trust. Love and trust. 
But today we are talking about trust. So let, let me deal with that for a minute. What do you think happens to a child that constantly watches his father or her father abuse the mother? Or the mother abusing the father, vice versa? What do we think happens when a man leaves home and runs away with the secretary? Or when a wife runs away with the gardener and leaving the children vulnerable? where trust is betrayed and they cannot comprehend it and they wonder why, why did daddy do this? Why did mommy do this? From an early age, what do we think happens when our parents or our families are torn apart through divorce and the father packs his bag and leaves the house and the mother goes his way and the mother and the children that's left behind are left to fend for themselves and just struggle to keep and to, meet, to make ends meet. This leaves children devastated, very traumatizing for them. And so for a child who's grown up in a background like that, trust is very difficult because the very authority figures in the child's lives have betrayed that trust. Or perhaps a child grows up in a home where the child is abused perhaps sexually, maybe verbally, by the people in authority over the child's life, the people that the child's grown to love and to respect and to trust. So when these things happen, it leaves us bruised. It leaves us broken. It leaves us betrayed. It leaves us not being able to trust those people in authority figure in our life. That is a biggie. And unfortunately, when we get born again, it doesn't get fixed automatically. You have to take reckoning. You have to reckon with what happened to you, and you have to seriously trust God to, 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 to cancel out the dysfunctionality, the behavioral issues that may be attributed to the lack of trust that you grew up with. Amen. So number one again, the falling nature. Number two, our family background plays, plays a big role, a big role, a big role. And number three, the culture in which we grow in. The culture in which we've grown up. Now, the best way for me to explain the, the issue with the culture, we'll have to, let me just use a very extreme explanation. Uh, perhaps um, if you live in a communist country, uh, whereby your next door neighbor could be very well a spy for the government. So everything you do in your house, in order for them to get a stipend or to get a reward from the government, they betray you. Amen? And so, so you live in a culture like that where dog is eating dog, everybody's betraying everybody, so they can get a step up on the ladder. Of course, you're going to grow up with a mental block of, of not being able to trust anybody because you don't know who is going to betray who next. And therefore, you are insulated from the, from, from the ability of being able to trust people around you. Now, the lack of trust humanly, horizontally, from friend to friend, from husband to wife, from wife to husband, uh, in the human realm, when we lack the ability to trust one another, there is a way in which that easily translates to a vertical relationship with God. Because for many of us, human beings are the gods we will ever see. 
Paul told us, we are reading epistle read by of all men. Many of us as believers are the only gods other people will ever see. And therefore, if I have a problem trusting you, more than likely, I may have a problem trusting God because I just transfer my lack of trust for you to the lack of trust for God. Now, of course, these things don't happen consciously. Nobody sits there and says, okay, because I don't trust this man or I don't trust this woman, therefore, I'm not going to trust God. No, it doesn't happen like that. It's just almost subconsciously. Our makeup just become uh, that which we have difficulty in trusting. And I'm, I don't know who I'm speaking to tonight. If your inclination, if your default is to just not trust, that I'm saying to you, you're going to have a serious problem being able to trust God. If your inclination is always to see the glass half empty and not to see the glass half full, that is a clear indication that you have issues with trust. Amen? If you're always looking, about, looking at what's wrong, and not giving thanks and being appreciative of what's good about a situation, you're going to have a problem trusting. Amen? It's just that simple. Now, there's one last uh, element in our struggles with trusting God that I want to mention. One last element. And that has to do with our life, our personal life experience. Our personal life experience. So I want to read a body of scripture. Now, this, this is a few scriptures here, but let me, let me just read it because I want to, I want to make sure we, we get this. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 32. And now I'm addressing the fourth element, the fourth reason why we struggle with God. And I'm saying that fourth reason is our personal life experience. In Matthew 14, verse 22, it says, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Now, it's important that you take note that Jesus sent them to go before him to the other side. Okay? Let me read on. Verse 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. Mm, glory to God. It is I. Do not be afraid. You need to underline that verse. Be of good cheer. It is I. Let me, I'll come back to that later. Verse 28. And Peter answered him and said, if it is you, Lord, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to, to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when he got into the boat, the wind ceased. Let me just speak to someone right now. I've just, I, just, I just felt prompted to say this now. I don't know who you are, where you are, what you're going through. And I'm saying to you, Jesus will catch you. Jesus will catch you. Whatever the circumstance that's causing you to sink, 
Jesus will not only catch you, but he will lift you up. He will bring you back to the land, to the glory of God in Jesus' name. Now, let me just say this. Many times when we are in hardship, it perhaps can be because of a wrong choice or wrong decision we have made. That is a possibility. But I want to say to you, that is not always the case. For every one of us who will walk orderly in obedience before God, I want to say to you, that does not exempt you and I from, uh, what I want to call it, from setbacks. It doesn't exempt us from, uh, from, from, from circumstances of life. It doesn't. This passage is a clear example because Jesus told these disciples to go to the other side, put them on the boat to go on the other side, and they were obeying Jesus. While they were obeying him, the winds of life blew. So I want to say to you, don't be in self-condemnation because you find yourself between a hard rock and a hard place. Don't believe the lie of the enemy for one moment. Don't accept any condemnation upon yourself because things are not going well. Maybe the money is not there. Maybe the joy for right now. Maybe you lack peace. Maybe your kids are not behaving properly. Maybe your husband or your wife is acting up. Maybe your job is putting pressure on you. Don't accept any such blame because God is not blaming you. He's not condemning you. Jesus did not come to the world to condemn anyone, not even the unbelievers. Hallelujah. The Bible made that clear in John chapter 3, verse 17. So here we are, these disciples were following the instructions of Jesus, and yet they ran into a very, very boisterous storm and wind, and they were rocked, and they were afraid. But look at what Jesus said. In Jesus addressing the fear, the first thing he said to them, be of good cheer. Oh, hallelujah. Again, I don't know who I'm talking to this morning or this evening or whenever you're watching this program. The message to you is be of good cheer. What does that mean? Celebrate. Hallelujah. Give thanks. Rejoice. Praise the Lord forevermore. No matter what's happening with you. Why? Because God inhabits the praises of his people. The first thing Jesus said to them, be of good cheer. Oh, hallelujah. Get your apple cider, your champagne bottle, pop it up and celebrate. I say, hey, bring it on because my God is here. Hallelujah. Let God in me arise and let my enemies be scattered. That's what Jesus is saying. Be of good cheer. And then he says, it is I. You see, the exhortation comes before the revelation. The exhortation comes before the revelation. First, he gives the exhortation. Be of good cheer. Rejoice. Praise God forevermore. Be confident. Know that God is on your side. Be thankful. Because the Bible says, in, in everything, you and I should give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us. And then as we give thanks, we see the revelation of who is on our side. Jesus, that son of the living God. I want to say to you this morning, this evening, this night, whenever you're watching, that Jesus is on your side. And if God be for you, 
who can be against you? Glory be to God. Amen? So of our pastoral life experiences, there are four things I want to touch. Number one, our fear and anxiety. Fear and anxiety. When our hearts are full of fear and anxiety, what should we do? Look at Jesus answering the text before us. The one I just read in Matthew chapter 14. Yeah. Be of good cheer, he says. First be of good cheer. That's an exhortation. And then the revelation comes. The Scripture Bible says, again, I've said it already, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, you, you rejoice. Why? This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is the way to begin to build faith, to begin to build your trust. So fear and anxiety as a personal life experience will almost want to shut you down. And for many of us, we've been afraid, we've been anxiety for so long, and we allow that to shut us down. Number two, number two, in our personal life experience that creates struggle from trusting God. Number two, the issue of false familiarity. Oh my God. The issue of false familiarity. And we see this in Matthew chapter 13 verse 58. The Bible says that Jesus was not able to do any significant miracle because in his hometown they had unbelief. Now he did, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He couldn't. Why? Why because of their unbelief? Because they know him. Oh, that's the son of Mary. Oh, that's the son of Joseph. Ah, he's another carpenter. Oh, how about this? Oh, how about that? And for me and you today, this same thing is true. This same thing is true. We look at the guy or the lady, we say, ah, I know that girl. I mean, what, what, what's, what's her problem? Yeah, that lady, uh, yeah, the one that blew yesterday. Our tendency is to look at those around us, and because of false familiarity, we are not able to discern when God has taken over their mouth and speak a word of wisdom to us, a word of knowledge. I remember years, years ago, when God was going to call me into ministry. I'm driving my son to school, and at the stop sign on Memorial Drive in Atlanta, I remember it very clearly. Stop sign, a red light. The boy looks at me, very young boy, six, seven years old at that time. He said, Daddy, when are, you going to, when are you going to obey God? Those were the words that came out of his mouth. Daddy, when are you going to obey God? Now, he had no idea myself and his mother were struggling with the decision to obey God. He didn't know that. <laughs> but this young boy opened his mouth and said, Daddy, when are you going to obey God? I knew immediately. This is not just a boy speaking to him. This is the voice of God. So the issue of false familiarity, we look at those around us and say, oh, my son is just five years old. What does he know? Oh, my grandmother is 99 years old. What does she know? And so forth and so on. Oh, she's my wife. Oh, she's my husband. Uh, you know, yes. In fact, I saw the guy, he was drinking alcohol yesterday. Well, how can he drink alcohol yesterday and know God today? Really? <laughs> if you are thinking like that, you are in a situation of false familiarity. You don't know God. You don't understand that God can use anything and anyone at any time to convey and to carry out his plan. Go and ask Balaam. When indeed listened to the voice of God, God spoke to him through an ass. Yes. Amen. That's in the Bible. I just didn't speak it. Glory be to God. So, fear and anxiety. And then, the issue of false familiarity. That's why Paul says to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Yes. 
I'm not going to know my wife according to the flesh. I'm not going to know my husband according to the flesh. He does, listen, I know them. We live together. But I'm not going to just look at them all the time according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. There was a time when we knew him according to the flesh, but now we know him by the spirit. So be careful. Be careful. Because there is a lot of false familiarity around all of us. When we begin to look at our husband, our wife, our friends, our kids, our brothers, and our sisters as people in Christ, realizing that Jesus indwells them, suddenly we will lay hold of the most incredible understanding, profound revelation, and convicting challenges. Hallelujah. And then number three of our personal life experience. The issue of personal tragedy. The issue of personal tragedy. A case and point, in John 20, verse 15, it was Easter morning, Mary Magdalene stood outside the sepulchre weeping, thinking the one speaking to her was a gardener. You see, sometimes in a time of tragedy, the person who ministers to us most effectively is not an angel or an apostle. In times of tragedy, Jesus will come to you in the most ordinary, through the most ordinary of people. Maybe your gardener, maybe your nanny, maybe the person who takes care of your lawn. Mary, no doubt, thought if anyone is going to give her understanding of what just took place, it will be Peter, John, or the angels at the tomb. But Jesus came to Mary directly, and she mistook him for a gardener. Perhaps, my brother, my sister, you are going through a time of real personal tragedy right now. In those times of weeping and crying, be careful. Because sometimes you miss Jesus coming to you very personally. You would think it should come through your pastor, through your elder, Peter or John or an angel, but you know how it's going to come? Through a very common person you wouldn't have expected. And if your antenna is not up, you miss him. You mistake him has been insignificant and unimportant. Too often we think we need to see the pastor, a staff member, an elder, or an angel, when we should be really looking for the gardener. Look for the person you thought won't have much to say or much to offer. That's where the deep ministry of Jesus Christ will flow most often. So again, in a time of personal tragedy, yes, when we're crying, when we're broken, when we're hurt, we've lost a, uh, a loved one, we need to be careful not to miss those that God sent to minister to us because we have a particular expectation. And lastly, under the struggle of personal uh, experience, we come to the issue of despair and despondency. Despair and despondency. 
In Luke 24, we read the account of two followers of Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus, depressed and despondent, following the death of their master. As Jesus joined them and asked the reason for their sorrow, they said, are you a stranger here? Don't you know what's happening? Where have you been? Then Jesus began gently and lovingly rebuking them for their lack of faith. And beginning with Moses and through the prophets and the book of Psalms, he told them how all scriptures foretold his death and resurrection. In other words, my friend, when you are depressed and despondent, the Lord will come to you. Initially, however, you might feel he's a stranger. The Lord will often come through the person you might have previously thought was strange. The eyes of the travelers on the Emmaus Road were opened when Jesus broke bread with them. So too, when we break communion, we realize, we realize we, are, we are one body, all partaking of the same Lord, all cleansed by his blood. Our differences may be irrelevant. No, our differences become irrelevant when we break bread because suddenly our eyes are open and we see Jesus. Fear and anxiety, false familiarity, personal tragedy, despair and despondency, all will keep you from recognizing Jesus, your Redeemer. Amen? So uh, I just wanted to share those critical four things that, that cause us to struggle in trusting God. Again, in summary, number one, because we were born in, with a sin nature, a fallen nature. Number two, our family background. Number three, the culture in which we grew in. And last, number four, our personal life struggles. Now, let me take the next few minutes to quickly go over with you how to learn to trust God. Trusting starts with surrender. Surrendering means that we are yielding to the power of God. When we give up our power, we've given it all up. We must surrender with our heart, mind, and words. Now, learning to trust God is like building muscle. <laughs> the more you use it, the bigger it gets. It takes a conscious effort and constant reminder to turn things over to God. So very quickly, let me give you some key points that will help you. Number one, choose God daily. Choose him daily. The bottom line is we have to put God first in our lives and make a continuous choice to trust God completely. Remember, don't just wait to trust him in the big things. Begin trusting him in the small things. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 says, Therefore I say to you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than meat and the body more than raiment? Amen. Number two, study the word. Study his word. The Bible is the rule book for living and our instructions in righteousness. Amen. So you have to study the word of God. Because it's in the scriptures that God is going to speak to you. Number three, remind yourself of God's goodness. God is a good God. He's a good God. And we need to constantly flood our memory with how good God is. What was the last good thing God did for you? How has God come out? How has God come, um, uh, how has he shown up in your life recently? What has he done? Remind yourself of his goodness. Number four, 
redirect yourself when you get off course. It's like watching a TV. You're watching a TV program and you notice that you start saying and doing things you don't like, you know it's wrong. You flip the channel. So in the same way, when you start thinking of course, when you start thinking unbelief, you need to shut that thought down. Don't allow, see, you cannot, you, 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 you can't uh, prevent the bird from flying over your head, but you can prevent it from building a nest. Don't let that bird build a nest of unbelief in your head. Redirect yourself. Get, when you get off course, redirect. Number five, remember that you are not in control. Just remember that. Remember that you are not in control. God is in control. Therefore, cast your cares before him. Acknowledge him in all your, all your ways, he says, and you direct your path. Number six, listen to God. The primary way that God speaks to all of us is through the Bible, through his word. Amen? Through Jesus. So listen to God. Prayer is not a one-way street. You pray, you stop, and listen to hear what, what he's saying back to you. You listen to God. Number four, seven, you follow God. Now, this is very important. This is where the rubber meets the road. What does it mean to follow God? Following God, first of all, means you take that first step and trust him with your eternal life. And I don't know who I'm speaking to tonight. This is where it starts. Following God means you're able to give your life to him and trust him for eternal life. That's where it starts. Once you've accepted Jesus as your savior, you've made the first step to following the Lord and trusting God completely. From there, you follow him to water baptism and you join a true local New Testament church. I need to say that again. A local New Testament or New Covenant church. The church is where you can learn all about God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Lastly, in order to follow God, you have to have a relationship with him. Talk to him in prayer. Listen to him through the teachings of the Bible, his church, and the convictions of the Holy Spirit. Hang out with his people. This will be your church family and other Christians. And serve God and his people by sharing the gospel with others and loving your neighbor the way Jesus loves everybody. And so I want to thank you for listening this, uh, to this message. And I just want to invite you to join us as we take on the world and we share the same message globally. You can join us to help us to share this message globally by giving to support this ministry. On your screen, you see all the various ways in which you can give. Thank you for your giving. We thank God for you. And we pray that every seed you sow, God will multiply back to your account in the name of Jesus. God bless you, and I'll see you the next teaching. God bless. God bless.